Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, our old friend Jan Doolittle-Wilson is back. I'm really excited about this because we finally officially get to talk about Miri Mazdur. And Jan and I, it feels like Jan and I have been talking about MMD for at least two years. Sort of like a sidebar topic. So I knew exactly that she was the perfect person to bring on to talk about her. I think that she and I have a similar take on the way that Miri functions for this story, which is very complicated, very interesting, but I think in general her heroism is understated, and so that's what I like to explore with Jan when we talk about MMD. Then in my bird's eye view, I will read an email I got from Elio about the climax of A Game of Thrones. All right, without further ado, here is Professor Jan Doolittle-Wilson. I'm really excited about these two because I think that because the show is so present in people's mind, um, especially when it comes to this first season, I think everything's overshadowed by Ned's death. Yeah. And I think that just to focus on Danny's narrative at this moment, I think will be really interesting. Um, without I sort of too. that other other thing looming, you know, not not to completely remove it from the narrative, but I do want to focus on these in isolation, and I think it, I think that that might help. A few and things. it seems to me as well. I was kind of thinking about that, and I know it happens for the first two seasons. After that, I get a little fuzzier. It's been a while since I've revisited the show, but this was kind of that tactic the showrunners had, where you you know you get to nine, you get to Baylor. And Ned, right? Such a shock. You think, where in the world was this show going? You know, I wasn't a book reader the first time I saw <laughs> sure, it. Yeah. And I thought, there is no way. I mean, that should have been the last episode. <laughs> and then you get to 10 and you think, oh my God, this is, wow. I Just know. that last image of, of Danny know. rising, you know, from the from the ashes. And then they kind of do that again, right? In season two. Mm. They will often do that. They will often do some kind of major climactic death or deaths or battle scene in the penultimate episode. Yeah. And then you think it can't get any better. (laughs) Right. Yes. And then the final scene, you almost see the, in the ultimate episode of every season, it's almost like the aftermath of, of what happened, but then you'll always, almost always end with something significant in Danny's narrative. In Danny. Yeah. Yeah. Almost always. So you've got the Misa. Yeah. I think that follows the Red Wedding. And then, of course, the end of the, is it the sixth where she's sailing off to Westeros? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've got just these amazing Danny moments mm-hmm. that typically end, you know, every season. So mm-hmm. um, and and the first season of the show definitely follows the book pretty closely with some significant differences mm-hmm. that I think will be fun to talk about. I kind of feel like this chapter, Jan, is where Danny's narrative turns in a way it's not a full sort of turn into chaos or monstrosity or something like that we don't find that till the next chapter but everything's going pretty well for her up until this point she's got right. some sort of ethical quandaries which we've talked about she's but she's learned to navigate this new culture pretty well she things are going really well with her and Drogo and finally, we get to this chapter, and everything's falling apart in a very short space. Right. It does collapse pretty quickly. 
however, you know, if you think about what led up to this point, you can really see throughout this chapter that while Danny has lived in this culture for, you know, a while now, yeah. she has tried to immerse herself in the culture. She became, you know, a great writer. Uh, she learned the language. Um, she and Drogo have developed this very tender, you know, loving mm -hmm. relationship. Um, and I think that people respect her to a certain extent. It still shows, though, that after all this time, she still has some fundamental misconceptions about not only the culture, but maybe her place right. in that culture. Right. And it's so interesting to me that for someone who is from Westeros, but didn't grow up there, how deeply rooted her thinking about leadership mm. and succession is still so much a part of of Westeros, right? right. And, and that tradition, as opposed to this Eastern tradition that she is now a part of. Yeah, a fundamental misunderstanding about how leadership works. I mean, this misunderstanding is kind of tragic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be that she kind of knows with her head, but she, and she's trying to overplay her hand anyway, but it's a really big mistake. It's a it's, really big mistake she's making. It's huge. I mean, there. I think there are two fundamental mistakes. And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, as readers, we can look back and say, well, you know, without these mistakes, you know, A, B, and C would not have happened and we mm -hmm. wouldn't get the Danny who emerges, you know, at the end. But <laughs> they're really tragic in the moment. And I think, you know, this is in the previous Danny chapter, but her kind of going in and trying to sort of kind of sanitize, right? Make more palatable this Dothraki culture, right, sure. <laughs> which she very much knows about. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's right there in Drogo's speech, right? I mean, he said yeah. everything that they were going to do. Yeah, there's going to be lots of rape happening. Lots of rape, lots of yes. killing. We're going to kill children. We're going children. to take slaves. Yeah, this is it... how we pay for the ships. He says everything. Yes. She knows this. And, you know, there's even that moment, again, in the earlier chapter where she's walking through this destruction and she has to kind of steal herself and say, oh, mm -hmm. OK, I knew this would happen mentally. Now that I'm seeing it, this is terrible. But you know what? It's all for the Iron Throne. And that's that kind of first hint we have that that Danny will do almost anything right to take her to her birthright to take her place yeah and but then even in that scene she's she's seen it for the first time and now she's yeah. having a, a bit of cognitive dissonance i think she is she is and seeing it is very different from just knowing yeah. it will happen yeah and then you know her trying to intercede i think with good intentions but her basically saying look this is not what i had in mind um, I, I want the rapes to stop. Yeah. Um, or if at least you're going to do this, marry, you know, marry these women, um, take them as your as your wives, have children with them, which, of course, is just a different form of rape and slavery for these mm -hmm. women. Right. Mm -hmm. And she really thinks that she's saving them. You know, she really thinks that she's protecting them, which is is the first huge fatal flaw. Right. Not only is she going against you know, the, the Dothraki practice and the ways which creates mm -hmm. conflict between, you know, the, the leadership and, and helps to, you know, scatter the, um, the, uh, the, not the troops, what's the word for um, the Kalasar, right? Yeah. Um, but she also sets into motion what will happen with Miri Mazdor, right? She That's thinks right. that, she thinks that Miri will do no harm and be loyal to her and help her because she quote saved her and she's not thinking about the fact that one, she really didn't save Mary as she learns, but Mary is still enslaved. So just by saying, look, I'll save you, but you'll become mine. I will now possess you. I will protect you yeah. again. That's just another form of slavery. And I think she does learn throughout these chapters that there really is no such thing as a benevolent master. Yeah. Right. The very fact of being a slave means that that slave will never be loyal to you. Um, they will always fight for their own interests. It's and she just doesn't yes. quite understand that yet. That's right. That's totally right. I mean, and I think that there's a sense, you know, this is kind of painted in zoological terms in that chapter. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's one of these moments where I think it was Kotho who said, "Take take them as wives. Horses don't lay with sheep. Uh-huh. What are you talking about?" Yes. And then you see this moment of revelation from Danny where she says, "I can play that game too because the dragon eats both of those animals." <laughs> right? And so that's kind yeah. of like a, you know, and and Drogo kind of like, you know, plays it off like, "Yeah, that's that's my son's fire within her, you know. He he's Right. You know, that that's that's the man, the warrior in her that's talking. But what's really happening there, I think, is that she knows deep down she's a Targaryen and she knows that that means something yes. about class, about, uh, you know, about who's in charge, about whose life is subject to whom. And every now and again, you'll get a little hint that Danny knows exactly who she is and the power that she has in terms of her, her family history and, and her family potential. Yeah, I think you're so right about that. And in fact, if you, again, look at the language in these chapters, anytime she is challenged and, you know, she says it mainly to, mm-hmm. um, you know, her, her blood writer, she says it to Jora, but when she is challenged, she often flings back this idea of, I am the the blood of the dragon. I am the daughter of the dragon. Mm-hmm. I am, you know, Daenerys Targaryen. She, she, she invokes that blood lineage, right? She invokes that family tradition as opposed to and she does say i am the khaleesi at times but usually when she's really challenged she goes back to that bloodline which i again i think you know is exactly what you were saying she's drawing on the idea of she knows who she is it just kind of takes her a while to fully realize that herself and to fully claim that yeah which is why i think that dream sequence in the next chapter is so yeah. significant yeah that's right let me do a synopsis of this chapter. Okay. And then we can jump into the specifics. Uh, so this is Danny's eighth POV chapter. Khal Drogo continues to weaken in his saddle as blood flies circle his dying body. When Danny reaches to touch him, he falls from his horse. This prompts a debate between Danny and his blood riders. A call who cannot ride cannot rule. Danny convinces them to set up camp and sends for Miri Mazdur. Danny pleads with her to save Drogo, even if it requires blood magic. Miri warns her that death will be cleaner, but Danny demands that it be done. The ritual begins with the killing of Drogo's horse and Miri's dancing. Kotho calls Danny a Maggie and threatens to kill her. Kotho kills Quaro, then Jora kills Quotho. Ago kills Koholo. Then Danny is in full labor. She is carried to Miri Mazdur while the blood ritual is still happening. Danny sees shapes dancing in the shadows. So, Jan, do you want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Well, I would kind of like to continue on with this idea of of Danny's choices here Mm. and how they lead to these tragic circumstances, but also lead to the path that she will be on um, as um, the mother of dragons, right? Well, talk about was, a character who found agency, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness, right? Right. And, and I have a lot of thoughts about her kind of very rapid evolution uh, in a lot of ways. But um, I think one line that you just said when you were going through the synopsis is this idea that the Dothraki follow strength. Yeah, that's right. Right. And they are not going to follow a call who falls off his horse, right? right? This idea of any sort of weakness, which is why, of course, when Drogo gets wounded initially, he does everything in his power to brush it off. Oh, it's not that bad. Just, you know, sew it up. I'm, I'm not going to wear this, you know, bandage that you've put on me. Mm. Um, I I don't need to, to follow these orders. Um, I'm the call, right? I am, I am strength. Mm-hmm. And he has to do that knowing what's at stake. You know, the, the first hint of weakness, he loses the Kalasar. Um, and they're watching him, right? They're all watching Mm -hmm. him very, very carefully to see what will happen. And so that minute he falls off his horse, you know, Danny quickly scrambles. They try to, you know, get him into the tent. Everybody knows what's happening, but she's trying to disguise it because she knows what that means. Even though, again, she's still under this kind of maybe wishful or naive idea that, well, this is horrible if, if, you know, Drogo dies, Mm -hmm. but my son then will take over. Right. My son will then succeed. 
And Jorah has to explain to her again, do you remember we had this conversation, Khaleesi, <laughs> way <laughs> long ago, where I explained to you that succession among the Dothraki is very different from what you see in Westeros. Mm-hmm. You know, with Westeros, you have a, a relatively settled people, you know, you have a, a, a landed people, they follow the kingdom. You know, it's like the king's guard. Yeah. One king dies, you are loyal to the next king regardless of the house, you know, regardless of the person, you follow the kingdom. Yeah, there's a and throne, Dothraki, right? There's an it's, office. There's a throne. Yeah. There's a station. And we're nomadic. <laughs> we're not a landed people. Uh, we follow the call. Uh, we follow the ruler. It's not some kind of kingdom. And if that ruler is weak, um, then we break off, right? We can't follow a weak leader. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, Khal Drogo goes from you know, sort of the ideal of hegemonic masculinity mm. to some version of subordinate masculinity, like overnight. Yes. You know, one Just fall off the fast. horse and you're done, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's it's interesting because there's, I mean, it's not like Robert Baratheon isn't a model of hegemonic masculinity. You know, the king, the king sitting on the throne is absolutely that ideal, right? Yeah. Um. But it just shows you how these different forms play out differently depending on the on on culture. And this is sort of the this is Danny's problem. She's made a fundamental mistake about right. the way that leadership works in this culture. Yeah, and, and going back to your point about you know the Iron Throne, it, it seems to me that the Iron Throne just kind of automatically confers manhood on the person sitting there, and so you can have Tommen. Yeah. Who's what eight <laughs> when he assumes the throne. Sure. He is legitimate not only because of bloodline, but because he's on the throne. Right. That makes him a man, regardless of the fact that he's a child and regardless of the fact that he's surrounded by, you know, older advisors. Yeah. It's very different in Dothraki culture. And Jorah even says to Danny, it doesn't matter that you've got Drogo's son inside of you. He's not their leader. They will not follow a child. They will not follow a babe. And you you have to understand that if Drogo dies, they'll kill your baby. Right. They'll do exactly to your baby what was done to the Targaryens. Um, and you are, if they don't kill you, they'll ship you off to the crones. <laughs> this is not how this works. Yeah. What Joris says is that, and I found this interesting. They said, you know, she's like, well, why would they kill a baby? He said, well, that baby has a prophecy attached to him. Yes, yes. And so the thing that actually gave her power before is now a liability. You know, because this is the stallion who mounts the world, now she's got some kind of sway over Drogo that she didn't have, and she's she can convince him to go to Westeros when he wasn't gonna do that before. And the all of his his blood riders are a little bit reluctant to let her order them around, but they kind of do it anyway because they're they're afraid of Drogo. And all of a sudden, this momentous achievement that is in her womb is her greatest source of weakness. Yes. You know, she's going to start making decisions based on, you know, protecting this life inside of her. And those decisions are like... <laughs> This story just turns so quickly. Yes. It's so it it just turns on a dime, it feels like in this chapter. I, although, you know, Martin does a great job of foreshadowing and, and all of that, but oh my gosh, does this story change? It does. And what you were saying about, you know, the prophecy, I think that's so key also to what happens with Miri, with Miri Mazdor, because she overhears, right? She's standing right next to Danny when they have this conversation with Drogo about um, you know, you look how, you know, look how she is on fire because of yeah. my son that she's carrying right. and he will be the stallion who mounts the world. Uh-huh. Mary overhears that. And so she, I think, recognizes pretty yes, quickly that right. it's not just Drogo who's the threat. Uh-huh. It's this child who has been prophesized to continue on with this plundering mm-hmm. um, and laying waste to, you know, my cities and killing my people and, and taking over. And so I think Mary pretty quickly recognizes that there's a double threat here. And yeah. you know, we can talk about what ensues from that, but I think that is is very key. It makes it makes her threatening, you know, what she's carrying inside of her, it makes her threatening to 
a number of different parties. Yeah. Let's talk about what ensues. I'm I'm curious to ask you, because I, I think that I've been pretty confident that Miri knows what she's doing from the start. Yeah. And af- but after reading this chapter, I thought, does she does she intend to kill Drogo? I, I mm-hmm. wanted to ask you. I so she you know, she she does these, you know, quote unquote healing arts in her temple for Drogo. Yeah. And then in this chapter, the way that it's presented, it's that, well, it was what Miri had done would kind of burned it was it was uncomfortable yeah and he ended up ripping all that off and having one of his eunuchs tend to him instead and it you know they used you know really cool uh i think it's like clay or something like that to put over the wound so i guess then the question is does the wound fester because miri intends for him to die or does the wound fester because Drogo didn't see this healing to fruition. Oh, those are the two schools of thought, right? And I go back and forth. I think there's evidence for both scenarios. Um, I'm kind of like you. Um, I tended to believe that it was very intentional, that that was the plan from the start. I still lean toward that. Um, And and I want to make a small case for that before I then kind of weigh the other side. The fact that she so quickly volunteers to care Mm. for Drogo. Mm. Now, you could say, well, she's just trying to kind of save herself, right? Um, She maybe doesn't want to be sold. You know, if she makes herself useful, you know, then, then she can maybe better her position. But... I don't know. There's just something about the tone or the language of how she just immediately says, Oh, silver one, you know, let me help. Um, And, you know, doing so against the explicit instructions, wishes, you know, of of the blood riders who from moment one are frightened of her. They fear her. They despise her uh, because they associate her with, you know, the blood mages and and the forbidden, you know, forms of magic. Um, that are so odious to Dothraki culture. Now, were there poisons inside, you know, this this poultice that she she makes up? Um, if you kind of look at the description of, of what she weaves together, right? She's kind of singing her song as she does this. Is there some kind of magic ritual involved in what she's doing? Um, but then going to the other side of this, what you said is, you know, again, when she's standing there with Danny mm. and she's overhearing what they're saying, and again, that the, the language that they're using, she knows very clearly that Drogo is very proud, that he can't show weakness, that he doesn't trust her magic. So there is something to be said about the idea of, look, I will go in and I will try to heal him yeah. knowing that he's not going to wear the bandage, knowing that he's not going to follow mm. my instructions. You know, she says very clearly, don't drink wine, don't take milk of the poppy. He does both. Right. <laughs> he pretty much does everything she tells him not to do. Interesting. And so I think she kind of knew, look, I can volunteer to heal him. Um, I can do everything, you know, that's appropriate in terms of healing, but I know what the outcome will be. He will not listen and mm. he will probably die as a result anyway and then that gives me a position where danny trusts me because i've set myself self up as a Mm. healer and then i can move on to my next objective which is saving my people by making sure that i destroy right you know any um possibility that this child will be born and you know fulfill the prophecy so I, I don't know, was there actual intentional poison, you know, dark magic involved in killing the call? I, I think it's inconclusive. I think it's kind of open right. to, has, has George Martin ever said uh, That's how he question. intended that? I don't know. I mean, yeah, if you're listening and you've heard George interviewed on this, definitely email me. Um, there's a couple of things about what Miri does that, are very interesting to me. At one point, she echoes what Drogo had said about you don't ask a slave, you order this a slave. Yeah. Right? So, you know, this is a sort of a callback to Danny saying, you know, 
she's like asking Miri to deliver her unborn child, right? Right. So she wants Miri there during the pregnancy. She wants a doula. And Drogo interrupts and says, you don't ask her. She's a slave. Tell her what to do. And it's almost sort of a mockery. And then later on, Miri repeats that back to Danny. Right. It's sort of a throwaway line, but she says, you know, you don't, you know, Danny orders Miri to do something. He says, well, you don't ask. You you tell a, a slave, right? Yeah. And you're seeing this little hint into this this woman who is not com- not going to be comfortably anyone's slave. Yeah. And that made me think she knew what she was doing all along. Yeah. Um, I but you make a pretty good case. You know, it could be like if Drogo had done everything that Miri told him to do. Who knows how this would have gone? And. And why doesn't he follow her advice? Well, because he's xenophobic and he's misogynistic. Right. And he, of course, isn't going to follow her advice. And she probably knows this about him. I'm so, sure she does. Can I throw in one more thing yeah. that I just thought about? Which is, if you, again, go back to that previous chapter where she's you know called in as the healer and she does her little you know incantation... You know, she has that sing song tongue um, as she's mixing up the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the potion, the, the plaster that she puts on him. What I think is so interesting is the very last line of that chapter. Um, she, this is Mary talking. She says, uh, well, to back up a little bit, the blood writers say, look, if anything happens to our call, we'll kill you. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you better not try to, you know, hurt him mm-hmm. because they're obviously suspicious of her immediately. And of course it's Danny who says, Oh no, 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 you know, she's loyal to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I saved her. She will not hurt Drogo. Um, what's interesting is the language that she uses. She's responding to the blood writers who are saying, don't forget, we'll kill you. And she says, as you say, writer, she gathers up her jars and bottles. The great shepherd guards the flock. Mm, interesting. She's not talking about, them. She's yeah. not talking about the Dothraki. No. She is saying, oh, I know that the great shepherd will protect my people. Right. And so is she kind of setting herself up in that moment? The reason I think maybe this is more intentional is she kind of sees, you know, 10 chess moves, you know, on the board Yeah. where she's thinking, okay, I know that if the call dies, they're going to kill me. Even if I didn't do it, right. Even if he, you know, if I make everything I'm supposed to make and he takes off the bandage mm-hmm. and, and dies as a result of that, they're still going to blame me. Of course they will. The minute she volunteers to heal him, she's dead if he dies, whether right. she intentionally sure. poisons him sure. or whether he doesn't follow the instructions. She pretty much knows he's a dead man in that moment because she knows he won't follow the instructions, right? So he's right. going to die. She knows that she will die. But what happens if the call dies and of course she also has this idea of well i'm going to be the doula you know for the birth of this baby um she's trying to save her people and she in that moment is very much acting as the god's wife right she's very much acting as the the servant the agent of the great shepherd and she knows that if she can destroy the call if she can destroy the stallion you know who will mount Mm -hmm. the world and break up the colossar she's won that's a huge victory for her and there will be no more plundering, right? There will be no more raping. Um, I am willing to sacrifice myself in order to save the flock. Right. And so it, it's little moments like that where I think this, this, this is definitely intentional. Now, how she does it, whether it's through poison or whether it's through just knowing uh, what the call will do, or I guess not do by not following instructions, it, it's very intentional. So the parallel to this conversation that I find really interesting is that Miri instructs Danny very specifically. Like she takes on the job to bring Drogo back to life, I suppose, or to save his life. Yeah. And she warns Danny. She says, you know, this is not going to be clean. You know, this may be a little bit dirty. I'm going to be drawing from powers old and dark. And Danny's like, anything, anything, anything. And she also very specifically says, 
do not let anyone come in this tent once I start singing. So the parallel here is that we could have a debate about whether or not Miri actually intends for any harm to come to her child, to Danny's child. Because what ends up happening is Danny leaves the tent and then eventually Jorah carries her back into the tent. Right. And in the next chapter, Danny actually says, yeah, Jorah shouldn't have done that. Jorah ended up unwittingly killing my children. I remember that Mary said that no one can enter this tent. This is a tent of death now. And I, you know, she brought her child into a place of death. And so that's what ended up happening to the child. The child became death. So you could read that Mary's actions in the same way. You could say, well, if Danny had followed Mary's advice, maybe her child would have survived. Mm. Uh, But what ended up happening was Danny was carried back into the tent by Jorah. And that's when the child's doomed. And then, of course, then we run into the problem, like, does Miri know what's going to happen? Or is she just giving people advice that people just will not follow? I think it's I think it's both, but I think it happens earlier. Oh. Um, I'm of the uh, the philosophy that it's not the tent that dooms the baby. It, oh. I think it happens sooner. And. I'm looking at page, uh, in my version, page 593. Okay. And so this is where she's having um, this conversation that you just mentioned, right? Where you're right. I think that in order for the spell to work, Danny has to consent. And so, you know, they have this conversation about, you're right. You know, she says, well, there is maybe a way, but it's super dark. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that you probably don't want to do. Um, we're going into really dark territory here. Um, and Danny even says to her, you know, her body goes cold. Um, then you truly are a Magi. Uh, mm-hmm. You really mm-hmm. are this blood mage. And she kind of smiles, right? Yeah. So she's kind of revealing that, well, of course I am. And then she says, you know, there's a price. It's almost like this, you know, Faustian yeah, devil's bargain, right? I'll go ahead bargain, and read right? this little section. It yeah, says, please. Danny went cold all over. Then you truly are a Maggie. Am I? Miri Mazdur smiled. Only a Maggie can save your writer now, Silver Lady. Is there no other way? No other. Cal Drogo gave a shuddering gasp. Do it, Danny blurted. She must not be afraid. She was the blood of the dragon. Save him. There is a price, the god's wife warned her. You will have gold, horses, whatever you like. It is not a matter of gold or horses. This is blood magic, lady. Only death may pay for life. Yeah, I mean, the price is pretty clear in that someone's going to have to die for this. What ends up happening next is that Danny says, it's not my, is it going to be me? Am I going to have to die? And, and, and Miriam Mazdur says, no, not you. Bring me the horse. And then the, well, then the horse is not, used, right? Not quite. There's a little gap, okay. right? There's a little gap there where she says, is it my death? And then Mary says, not your death, She says, Khaleesi. no, Mary Mazdur promise. Not your death, Khaleesi. Danny trembled with relief. Do it. And what's interesting is she doesn't ask who's death. Ah. Right. <laughs> Danny doesn't say in that moment, oh, well, if it's not my death, uh-huh. which I'd be willing to give, whose death is sure. it? Yeah. She doesn't say that. And then they bring out the horse and it's almost as if Danny's like, OK, I'll transfer this idea to the horse. Mm. I'll believe it's the horse. Do you think that in that moment she knows if it's not me, it's it's my child? I think she knows. Huh. And and Mary even throws that back on her later and says, yeah. you, knew. you knew. Don't act like you didn't. Don't put this on me. Yeah. I put it as clearly as I could. There will be a death and it's not yours. So what other death could be as momentous sure. to save Drogo? Yeah. I think she knew, but she pretended she, she kind of went into that zone of I'm just yeah. going to shut this out and not acknowledge to myself that this is bargain I'm making. And then the other thing that I think is, is maybe more of a subtle proof that it's not the tent that does it. I think she starts to miscarry before she goes into the tent. Um, 
if you flip over a couple of pages, it's my 597. Uh, Danny felt a sharp pain in her belly, a wetness on her thighs. This is before they go into the tent. I think the minute the blood ritual started, the baby was dying. Oh, interesting. And going into the tent, I don't really think did anything. And again, it, it kind of by Danny saying in the next chapter, oh, it was Jorah. Jorah didn't mean to do it. He's the one who killed sure. my baby. She is still transferring responsibility. Yeah, I, I can believe that as her water breaking, but it you're, the timing. You're, you're absolutely right. The timing is very coincidental here. It's subtle, and you know I could be misinterpreting, but the fact that she's starting to feel that pain before she goes, and you know she again gave consent to Mary to start the blood ritual, knowing what the sacrifice would be. I don't think it's going in the tent that killed the baby Mm. because Mary in that moment said, okay, I've got the consent. I'm going ahead. We know what that life is. It's going to be the life of the child. I think in that moment, the child was, was going to die. And I don't think the tent had anything to do with it. All right. I'm going to read you these lines from the chant, right? Okay. You could take this one, you could take this both ways here. Miri says, Strength of the mount go into the rider. Miri yeah. sang as horse blood swirled into the waters of Drogo's bath. Strength of the beast go into the man. So, I mean, on the surface, it looks like, yeah, the horse's blood is doing the work here. You know, the horse is the mount. The horse is the beast. I suppose the other way you could read this is, well, this child is the stallion who mounts the world, so that's the mount. Or, you know, this child is dragonish. Maybe that's the beast. Mm. It's it's vague here. I think it's maybe it's intentionally vague. I think that intentionally Martin wants us to wonder what actually happened in this ritual and why the outcome, why we got the outcome we got, you know? And I think maybe what it also teaches Danny when she goes through her own ritual in the last chapter, I think what she learns there is blood is not enough. It's blood plus Mm. life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mary even says to her at one point, you don't know what you're doing. Blood is not enough. And, you know, if you think back to kind of, you know, Targaryen history, they had been trying to resurrect dragons, you know, for for centuries. And they never quite got the formula right. Right. (laughs) Right? It's either blood ritual or it's sacrifice. It's it's those two things combined with a willingness to sacrifice the thing that you love. And so I think that Danny, again, not to, to jump to the last chapter, but I think she learns that from this tragedy, right, of what happened with with Drogo and and her baby. And then she knows this is exactly what I need to do to birth the dragons. Mm. Um, There's this interview with Martin where someone asked them directly, uh, like, does it take a human sacrifice to birth a dragon or hatch a dragon? And he basically said, I'm going to choose not to answer that. Ooh. (laughs) Interesting. To me, that means, yeah. That it does, yeah. but he's not. He doesn't want to go into it. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't want to reveal too much here. Um, and we could also ask who is being sacrificed yeah. when the dragons hatch. Is it Danny or is it Mary? That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. The other thing I noticed about this chapter that got me that I had never realized before, because what happens in this chapter is it's a big, a big fight ensues. Like there's this, there's this fatherly, this very kindly fatherly Dothraki writer named uh, Koholo. Yeah. And he was always, you know, sort of, sort of a fatherly figure to Drogo, but it was always nice to Danny. And all of a sudden, when she gets called a Maggie, he he spits right in her face. Yes. And then later on, when she's trying to like stop someone from going to kill Miri Mazdur, I think it, she was trying to stop Kotho from going into the tent. He grabs her hair and puts a knife to her throat. Yes. And so he, it's almost like okay, so Danny was 
finding her way into the culture and she was accepted. Or at least that's how she feels. She feels like these are my people and I have authority here. And she's finally, she finally feels safe. You know, she finally feels like she's got love in her life. And here's this guy who was always tender to her, who's now spitting in her face and trying to kill her. Yes. Um, yes. And so I always felt like this is just brutal. This whole thing is very brutal. And then this last reading for the very first time, I started to think about this from the blood riders perspective. They truly believe because of probably centuries of tradition that the way that you die determines what happens in the afterlife. Mm, Yeah. Very specifically, your fate is tied to your call. So I, I think that in the past I was always thinking like, well, they're xenophobic. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're doing wrong by Danny and all of this business. And that, that is all true. It's also true that if something is done dirty with Khal Drogo's death, maybe their place in the Nightlands are compromised. You can kind of see what what is motivating them in the end. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about, you know, the idea that they fear for their, you know, eternal souls. I mean, that's that's such a good point. Um, But you're right. I mean, this idea that she is completely upsetting the order of things, not to mention the fact that she is dabbling in something that is so despised and feared. Yeah, at the very least, yeah, at the very least, she's bringing an uncertainty into something that was certain before. You know, there was a certainty before that my fate is secure. As long as, as long as I'm with the call, my fate is secure. Now I don't know what's going to happen to me. And, and right. Jorah kind of calls it out. You know, he says, yeah. you know, Kotho is about to die. He knows he's a dead man and you can, he, th- that kind of person is desperate. Yes. And I think that it's even, he's, you know, Kotho's even more desperate because it's not just his, his life. It's also his death that's hanging in the balance. Right. And and this idea of, of not just, you know, in the afterlife, but I think there's also this fear that they will all be cursed, mm. right? That they will live a, a cursed existence because of what Danny is doing, right? There are so many examples, of course, all throughout, you know, history and, and folklore and literature, and, and very much so in Game of Thrones, those who tend to try to cheat death, mm. right? Those who try to make these kinds of devilish bargains, um, those who try to interfere with fate um, or, or change prophecies, it never ends well, yeah. <laughs> right? It, right? It always leads to almost a, a fate worse than death, right? It always leads to terrible outcomes. Mm. There is a terrible price, right, to be paid by, you know, humans, mortals who enter these realms. And I think there are lots of examples of that in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, look at how Cersei is tortured by knowing, you know, she she dabbles in this blood magic to try to figure out, you know, her eventual fate. And it tortures her. Yeah, it's, It becomes like this self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, Stannis. I mean, we could go on and on. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one very early hint of this is always a bad idea. And if it's Drogo's time, and I think you're right from the Blood Rider's perspective, our fates are tied to him. Our souls are tied to him. And if you try to pull him back from a natural death, from the grave, we're all damned. Yeah. Whether here or in the afterlife. I, I think that's such a good point, Anthony. I was just rewatching the uh, series with Steve. And one of the things that I noticed is that this difference between Danny in the show and Jon Snow in the show. Because they both at one point have a relationship with Melisandre. Yes. So, I forgot about John coming back from the dead. Yeah, right. So so John is really skeptical about any kind of prophetic utterance. Yeah. And he doesn't really feel that special. It's like, yeah, you brought me back, but I, I don't I don't know what to do with that information. I never got religion. I'm I can mm-hmm. see that this witch has power. I guess I'll use her. He doesn't really ever go in for the prophecy. But immediately when Danny meets Mel, Danny's like, "Tell me more. Tell me more about this prophecy." <laughs> I want right. to Ooh, I like I like that the the, you know, 
the prince or princess doesn't have a gender. I, I like that. Tell me more about that because I feel like, you know, that's going to help me. Danny knows that she's special, right? Right. Right. And so she's very willing to jump into this sort of prophetic expectation. And in the end, I think you're right. It, it, it has horrible consequences for her. And I think there's that family history too, right? I mean, yeah. the, the Targaryen origins and um, the idea of, of you know, the, the dragon blood. And I know there's a lot of, um, you know, writing from Martin and speculation about did the Targaryens at some point in their history try to, you know, empower themselves by um, ingesting dragon blood or, you know, manipulating their genes. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a lot of kind of lore out there about that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's very much connected to this kind of blood magic or mysticism that, you know, seems to be a part of that Targaryen line. Yeah. Um, and building from the historical reality that certain ruling families convince themselves that they're special. Yes. And that they're born to rule and that they're different from everyone else. And so right. th now we, we, we have a fantasy telling of this very same thing, but it's the same mentality. It is. And you get a lot of hints, even in this first book and even in the early chapters of that kind of building hubris in Danny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You right. can just see the, again, the language that she uses, she kind of goes from, I am, you know, sister of the dragon. I am, you know, mother of, of the coming mm -hmm, dragon to mm -hmm. I am the dragon, right? Yeah. I mean, she, she very much kind of takes this on first person as we go through this book. Yeah. So I should note that inter introduced in this chapter, um, Jorah is called the Andal for the first time. Oh, I, think, I hadn't picked up on that. Yeah. I think this is when he's called the Andal. And then um, introduced to something called pepper beer. Does that interest you at all, Jan? Pepper beer. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So, not not interested. <laughs> it does not sound appealing yeah, to not, me. Not interested in pepper beer. <laughs> um, I think that blood flies uh, are the, we, the first we hear of um, blood flies. Yeah. Um, notable departures, a lot of them. Um, so, yes. Quaro's dead, Quotho's dead, Hago's dead, um, Koholo's dead, and. Drogo's horse. Yes. So um, and the baby, you could say, I guess. Yeah, maybe, but we don't really. I think the baby dies off page. Yeah, definitely the baby's dead before the next time we meet Danny, right? So I guess you're right. right. Departure of Danny's baby. Although we wouldn't, I don't think that we would know that. We could say the baby is in the process of dying. Yeah, something, something along those Not lines. Not to be callous, I said that far too cheerfully. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess it's you could sad. say the it's same tragic. thing about Drogo, shouldn't you? I mean, mm -hmm. Drogo's, of of course, we're we're sort of saying goodbye to Drogo's personality, um, right? Everything that Danny knows about Drogo is is dying. Is gone. Yeah. <laughs> For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to revisit the conversation about climax in A Game of Thrones that I introduced a few weeks ago. As I mentioned, I thought, maybe I'll try to get George's take on this. So I emailed Elio. Unfortunately, no word from George. Uh, hopefully it's because he's typing away on the winds of winter. Uh, but I did have an interesting conversation with Elio Garcia, George's co-author, Here's what Elio says. He says, there's a succession of climaxes across the novel. And while a lot of them hinge around the conflict that leaves Ned beheaded, not all of them do. The climax of Daenerys' story is having Miri Mazdur try to save Drogo and all the chaos that that causes. The climax of Jon's story is fighting the White in the Lord Commander's chamber. Then Elio concludes, I do think it's fair to say that the King's Landing story is in falling action after Ned's beheading, and this does fundamentally change the reader's perception of that late portion of the novel as they see the chaos unfolding. So I think Elio here echoes a few listener emails that are chiding me for looking for a single climax to the story. And I think in general, I do believe that that's true. I don't want to entirely give up this idea 
that all of these storylines create a mosaic of a larger story, and that stories usually function with rising action, climax, falling action. So I think that we are looking at a few peaked climaxes over a portion of the book, Ned's beheading being central among them. But I think that the first of these is Littlefinger's reveal to Ned in the throne room. So for those who know me well, yes, indeed, I am going for a both-and solution, as I usually do. Anyway, thank you, Elio. And you know what? Thanks, George. Thanks anyway, because the lack of reply gives me hope for the winds of winter. But my gratitude has a shelf life. If I never get winds, I will rescind my gratitude entirely. Okay, speaking of gratitude, I'm going to ask you a favor. In fact, I'm going to try to convince you of something. All right, so if you have any kind of appreciation for what I do each week, I want you to trust me on this, okay? One of my favorite films of all time, it's on my top 10 list, is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, 1969. It's a really goofy movie. It's got a lot of problems. It's a delight from start to finish. I love this movie. Do yourself a favor. Watch the movie. Sit down. Watch the movie. Enjoy beautiful people saying witty things. A movie with compelling camera work. A movie that's self-aware of its own genre and innovative enough to bust the genre that it's in. But of course, bring your critical eyes to it. Watch that movie. And then, all right, so here's the favor. Search for my other podcast and listen to Steve and I talk about this movie. I will gush about it. Steve will make jokes about it. If you've enjoyed Steve and I on this podcast, I guarantee you'll have a great time with this movie. Cocoons of Horror, wherever you search for podcasts, specifically one of my favorite films, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And if you find that it's not worth your time, send me an email. Say, I hated the film. I also hated your podcast. I hate you. I'll email you back. I'll apologize. And I will include a... I'll write a poem for you, specifically for you. It'll be a limerick or a haiku, but it'll be personalized specifically for you, and maybe that'll entertain you in some other way. I don't know. Anyway, Cocoons of Horror, wherever you search for podcasts. And that is all for this week.